Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. I am your host, Dara Tarkowski. And today we have got Federico Baradello, CEO and founder of Finalis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dara. So, uh, Federico, can can I call you Fed? Yes. Someone told me that that's what you go by. Yeah, I learned early on that Federico maybe had at least one or two too many syllables for most people in the business world. So Fed has worked very well. So Fed Finalis is a company on a mission to power dealmakers, building the world's largest security brokerage platform. That's right. Yeah, we've been at it for about two and a half years now. Uh, and feel very gratified by the growth. And we're working with over 160 investment banks across the United States uh, today and have over 800 active deals in market. So two and a half years, that means you guys launched in the middle of a pandemic. Yes, we did. How'd that come about? Well, I mean, a a variety of things happened. Uh, I actually left, you know, maybe it's worth backing up and telling a little bit about kind of how I got to this point. But I launched Finalis uh, after having been a, a corporate securities attorney at uh, Kirkland and Ellis in in the San Francisco. Oh, my, my condolences. Yeah, so I you know I went through that experience um, and lived the pain points firsthand that we're looking to resolve. And one of the interesting things that I observed in my time at K and E was that my career was really circling around a central irony which was the fact that we were working on all of these amazing technology company buyouts for private equity funds like Vista, Silver Lake, and others. But the technologies that we were using as deal practitioners to actually execute on those transactions were 30 years old. It was a combination of (laughs) thousands of process emails, uh, uh, clunky and old school, and frankly, overpriced virtual data rooms. Um, and, and of course, process trackers built in places like Microsoft Excel or Microsoft Word, which really oh, made no sense. But that's so good for billable hours, Fed. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, I think one of the interesting things there is that, you know, all of my, uh, I guess, colleagues that were working on the execution layer of the transaction, which to be clear is anything from the first to third or fourth year associate uh, are all digital natives. And as digital natives, by definition, that means we basically live our entire lives in the cloud. And the irony there was that the most important aspect of our careers, our deals and how we were managing them, was the basically the only thing that wasn't in the cloud because everything else in our lives is in the cloud. And so to me, that culminated in this obsession around how can digital transformation be brought to bear in private market deal execution? And so I left the firm in the summer of, of 2017 to work on answering that question. All right. So left the firm in 2017, went deep down into dev mode, and by 2020, Finalis was born. 
That's right. Yeah. And I think early on, we really had to answer two pretty important questions. The first question was, what's the penetration point, right? What's the go-to-market strategy? Uh, and in, in the private market deal execution world, you have a lot of different stakeholders, right? A lot of cooks in the kitchen, right? The lawyers are just one stakeholder, but you also have the investment bankers, the issuers, the investors or acquirers, the accountancy and tax advisors, et cetera. So there's lots of different stakeholders. Early on, we realized that the go-to-market strategy had to start from within the investment bank. The primary reason for that is because the potential deal, that mandate, is actually born within the investment bank. The moment that an investment bank signs an engagement letter with their client, the issuer, saying that they're going to represent their client on an M&A transaction or a capital raise, that represents the moment of inception of a possible transaction. And so we realized early on that we needed to start within the from within the bank because we needed to be relevant uh, as a technology platform from, from day zero of that potential transaction. The second question we had to answer was, how do you get into the bank at high velocity and at scale? And that was the question that for us was probably the most vexing, and it took us a while to figure it out, frankly. And what we realized ultimately was that there was a tremendous opportunity to look at the go-to-market playbooks of companies like Compass in the real estate space mm -hmm. or Newfront in the insurance space that recognize that the best way to disrupt a brokerage vertical is to modernize and technology enable the back office of that brokerage vertical. And so in other words, we realized that the best way into a brokerage, if you're going to abstract investment banking into being a brokerage, you do that not by walking through the front door with a productivity suite, but rather by walking through the back door by being the technology-enabled rails upon which the broker bolts themselves on top of in order to scale their respective business. Obviously, the platform is built designed with all of these different stakeholders in mind, right? You've got you've got your banks, you've got your you've got your issuers, you've got your brokers, you've got your lawyers, you've got your accountants. Um, I imagine that you're tracking some sort of metrics and efficiencies. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what you guys have observed since launch about the efficiencies that Finalis is creating um, you know, for the industry. One of the early things we did is <laughs> And, th and this came from my training as a lawyer, um, so you can, I'm sure you and many of the listeners can appreciate this, is we actually had our compliance officers use timekeeping software and <laughs> log in detail uh, where their time was being allocated. And the reason we did that wasn't so much because we were billing by the hour, because that's not Finalis' billing uh, process, but because we were looking to learn from a product perspective, where were the opportunities to further streamline and automate our compliance officers' workflows? And so I think initially there was a little bit of thrash there, as you might imagine, of you know, asking a, a career professional in an industry who's never done time tracking to start doing time tracking. Um, it's hard enough to get the lawyers to do it properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's certainly the case. Um, <laughs> But it ultimately uh, unearthed, I think, a, a wealth of information that we were able to leverage. 
uh, in service of making data-driven decisions around what we were going to automate first. And one of the first insights that I think is worth sharing is the fact that the vast majority of a compliance officer's time isn't spent making decisions. It's actually spent organizing and collecting information necessary to make those decisions. And what the regulator doesn't, doesn't sound like the highest and best value use of a compliance officer's time. <laughs> absolutely not. Nor is it particularly humane when you look at the fact that <laughs> a compliance officer has to go through hundreds or thousands of emails and parse data from a variety of different sources and platforms in order to make a decision. Or even worse, engage in a 20 email exchange with uh, with a client or a client's deal counterparty in order to collect the information necessary to make a decision. And what we saw was that, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity for technology to automate and streamline how that information lands in an ordered fashion on the desks of our compliance officers so that they can make high quality decisions on the basis of complete information at the speed of our investment bankers' businesses. And that's really what we're trying to achieve as it relates to the software automation that we're building in to our compliance officers' workflows. So uh, it's, it sounds like obviously the compliance officers must love this because it takes it puts a little bit more humanity to use your to use your phrasing back into their lives, so they can spend time instead of shuffling uh, or e-shuffling papers, uh, so to speak, and actually doing some more critical e thinking, exercising and compliance work, exercising their judgment, which is the whole basis of regulatory supervision. Is you know, if, if I if I look at a compliance officer's time in a traditional investment banking organization, and I see this picture, which is what we witnessed, which was around 85% of our compliance officers' time spending being spent on organizing information and only 15% on decision-making, our position is we want that 15% to be 100%, right? We want 100% of our compliance officers' time focused on really delivering that value-added expertise, which they have spent their careers honing and developing. Are the lawyers loving it? Well, you know, we have lawyers on the team as well. Uh, and I, I think that's why, that's why I ask. And not just myself. We have two uh, full-time uh, attorneys uh, within, within the company. And, you know, there as well, with, within legal as well, we see a tremendous opportunity to scale uh, the way in which uh, legal support is delivered in the context of a platform like Finalis. And one of the ways that we do that is through templates. You know, when, when an investment bank joins the Finalis platform, they have access to over 20 different uh, legal templates, which we update on a consistent basis and which deliver a great deal of leverage, as you might imagine, to those investment banks so that they don't have to necessarily worry about having to spend on legal when ultimately 
the needs from from one investment bank don't vary significantly from a legal perspective uh, from one investment bank to the other. And so we have legal templates that include different types of engagement letters, uh, you know, DDQs, uh, you know, non-disclosure agreements, and it really runs the gamut. Um, but that is a, a very meaningful source of leverage to many investment banks on the Finalis platform today. But even, even beyond templates, we see opportunities to further streamline legal workflows because many of the legal requests or requests perhaps that blur the lines between compliance and legal uh, ultimately can be automated in large part uh, because either either because the requests are frequently recurring and they can be boiled down to uh, to an FAQ, or because the nature of the request could you know typically revolves around the construction of legal documents, which again are based on templates. And so I think so that. It's funny because as I'm as I'm listening to you talk, I was going to ask you before whether or not you really viewed yourself as a fintech or a regtech, and now I'm listening to you and I was like, well, are you a fintech or regtech, or are you a little bit alternative legal service provider too? Because so much of what you're describing really does sort of fit under an ALS umbrella in you know in in a lot of different ways. Uh, yeah, it's, what do you it's, think? It's interesting. Yeah, I would say. Uh, we see ourselves as a fintech. Our go-to-market strategy is very focused on the regulatory and compliance back office, which does play into legal a bit. Um, but I want to be clear here that as it relates to the way in which we deliver legal, it's legal in the service of uh, our broker-dealer platform. It's right. analysis is not a general counsel for the 160 investment banks on the, on the Finalis platform. It just so happens that by virtue of how the platform is designed uh, and scaled, the broker-dealer's interest, legal interest, is 99.95% aligned with the investment banker's interests. And therefore, you know, Finalis' legal department, when it's rendering uh, that legal support, it's very aligned with uh, with also providing legal support to the end bankers themselves that are leveraging the platform. Right. So, so you, I mean, without actually practicing law or giving legal advice or anything like that, like sort of like an ALS, um, you get them far enough along for the lawyers to step in and then do their jobs. And I, I would have to imagine that cuts down on legal outside counsel legal spend as well. I, for all I, I think that's involved. I think that's very much been the experience of many of the investment banks on on the Finalis platform today. So yes, I, I would agree with that, and I think that you know the reason why uh, I'm so vocally saying that this is a fintech and not necessarily a reg tech um, and certainly a legal tech is because we have a broader strategy than being the compliance and regulatory back office for. Uh, investment banks at, in the United States and, and eventually globally. We have a vision around building the world's largest and essential deal-making platform. Uh, and, and what that means is that we're not just focused on you know, building out regulatory and compliance tooling. We're also focused on building a, a really exciting marketplace around deals and, and 
various stakeholders within the capital markets realm themselves. So that Finalis is basically facilitating uh, deal, the deal-making process, leveraging our strategic positioning as the regulatory and compliance back office for so many investment banks in the United States and eventually overseas. So I want to switch gears for just a second because I always love these stories in part because, you know, I have my own and my listeners have heard, have heard mine already, but what motivates a, you know, uh, a successful practicing attorney who's working at one of the best firms in the world, hats off k and we all know how awesome you are. What, what motivated you to go from corporate lawyer to tech entrepreneur? How did that happen? Yeah, I think um, there's, ver- there's a few different ways to answer the question. Uh, there was not- Answer in the most entertaining way. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the first thing I'll say is that, you know, I realized after a period of time in doing doing deals, I think at my time at Candy, I did about 40 transactions, worked on about 40 transactions that there was a almost like a functional incompatibility between who I was and what what I enjoyed and and the way in which my career was evolving because on the one hand I derived like a great deal of intellectual satisfaction and adrenaline from working on the deals but functionally there were a few things that didn't work for me the first element of that was that the job was too stationary and I'm somebody that likes to be on the move, right? I, I have ants in my, my pants. I, I, <laughs> like to travel. I like to have different kinds of experiences and I wasn't necessarily getting that in my job. And I was observing our partners and realizing that it, you know, there wasn't, there, there's no inherent value for a senior attorney in having their client and having a client pay for their travel, right? And so I saw that the job was going to continue to be very stationary. The second aspect of the job that I felt was functionally incompatible with what I was looking for was that the job could be fairly monotonous. And what I mean by that is that you know the job is basically to negotiate uh, and draft you know forty or fifty different types of legal documents. And once you reach a certain level of expertise with respect to how to do that, that's, that's the job. And for me, I felt that I needed more variety, right? Um, I needed to have uh, a broader range of issues that I could, that I could tackle on a day-to-day basis than simply, you know, negotiating and drafting 40 or 50 different types of legal documents. And so I think that that was the second observation. And then the third is that I felt that the job was a little too reactive for me. And I wanted a career that was more proactive. And what I mean by reactive is that I would wake up in the morning, look at my email, and there'd be a bunch of things that I needed to action. My email inbox was basically my to-do list for the day. And so irrespective of what great ideas or designs I had for how the day was going to play out, my day was really going to be It's all about cleaning it out or cleaning it out to the best of your ability. Exactly. And for me, 
again, for me, is everybody has different things that they're looking for in a career and that they're solving for. But for me, I needed to exercise more creativity, more proactivity, more autonomy in my day-to-day job than I was able to get in a law firm construct. And I say that with the utmost respect of people who uh, choose to to work in that environment, because again, when I, went out, when I was at k and I was working alongside some of the brightest, most talented people and uh, legal minds in, in the industry. And, Kirkland, and many Kirkland and Ellis partners are actually investors in Finalis and, and have been able now from the other side of it uh, to continue to be uh, important partners in, in the company's success. It just wasn't a fit for my personality or my disposition. And um, I knew that was the case. Even in the earliest days of launching Finalis, when there was no customers, no product market fit, no capital, I never once had any regrets about the leap that I took. I remember thinking that my biggest stressor when I was getting ready to leave the firm was going without a salary for a period of time. And I went without a salary for about seven months. But even then, and I had just bought a condo, so I had a mortgage, right? But even then, in those moments, I didn't regret the decision because it wasn't, it almost was less about the idea itself that I was working on and more about how I was solving for these functional problems uh, that ultimately led to driving more satisfaction in my day-to-day. So it's so funny. There's a pretty classic trope about us lawyers in that, you know, lawyers are not great business people. Lawyers are so risk averse. Um, And it sounds like there's still a handful of us and yourself included that just break, break the mold. We, we can be good business people. We're okay with taking a risk. Um, And it sounds, at least it sounds to me like you thought that risk was, it's proving to be a worthwhile one to take. 100%. And what I would say, though, uh, is that there were a lot of things that I had to unlearn from my time as a lawyer and a lot of new skills that I had to learn. Okay, so I I have to ask, tell me what big law habits you had to unlearn. I'm wondering if they're the same ones that I had to unlearn. Well, when you're billing out your time at $1,000 plus an hour, it's fair for your client to expect you to deliver work product at a level of perfection, right? Sure. When you're launching a company, if you're focused on perfecting your legal documentation or even elements of your strategy, you're never going to get out of the gates. And so I had to get very comfortable quickly with a minus or B plus execution. And that's difficult because what's valued more in entrepreneurship is the gumption and the velocity of, of execution, right? The gumption of showing up and trying and doing it. And secondly, the speed at which you're doing that. And that those values are diametrically opposed to you know, how, uh, you know, the incentives are brought together and what the expectations are 
within the context of, of a law firm. And so I had to unlearn that. Yeah, spent- so the, the the break shit and move fast definitely does not fly um, yeah. in, in, in the big law environment. But not only does it fly in the world of fintech, it's 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 applauded, it's invested in, it's and it's viewed as and it's truly viewed as visionary. At least that's been that's been my experience. Um, so you know, hats off to you. Um, having having been also person who's taken that leap, I know it's not an easy one. Um, so you know, thumb, thumbs up. There's like <laughs> not a huge club of us people. Yeah, who, well, who do that. What I would say though also is that I'm not sure that we would have gotten where we, where we've gotten to had I not been an attorney. Oh, totally, totally fair statement. Um, totally fair statement. There's, there is a huge value to knowing not only what you love and what satisfy you, but to also understanding what you don't, um, and from a, you know, from a practical standpoint, I agree with you that, you know, working with some of the best minds um, in the industry, all it did was make us better um, and you better at, at what you're going to do. So massive value, like the mentors in my career, and I'm sure the mentors in your career, like that sort of, you know, that sort of time spent there can't be replicated really, any, really anywhere else. There's such unique environments. I remember thinking, you know, when I left the firm, I was there long enough to think, well, this is how things go. In the, in how, the long were you, how long were you there? I was there for five years. And I remember, I remember thinking, well, this is just, this is how business interactions operate. They, they operate at the level of professionalism that I'm used to from within the law fo- firm or the law firm's interactions with its clients. And what you realize... <laughs> Is that obviously, I mean, of course, in retrospect, I think, how could I have possibly thought that was the case? But you really believe that this is how things go, that people are operating at, you know, 10 out of 10 level professionalism at all times. Right. And I remember. Welcome to the rest of the world. (laughs) Welcome to the rest of the world. Right. I mean, that's not how things go. But even basic things like not saying in 50 words what you could say in 10. Right. Or responding to emails promptly. Or when you respond to an email, respond in a com- to the question in a complete way or a comprehensive way that anticipates the next question, right? But those are things that you learn. It's like muscle memory within a firm. Oh my gosh, to me, those are everything that you just said. Those are things that you learn when you want to make sure that uh, the partner's email that you're answering um they don't walk down the hall and 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 yell at you for for answering well, for answering half of their questions. Right, um, or, and or half, half of the clients for getting out of there in five years. You, you you got out earlier than I did, so. Yeah, and you, what you realize is, well, you better get good at doing those types of things, or uh, you know, I would think oftentimes those emails would come in at you know six seven p.m. on a Friday, and I had you know, a dinner planned. And I was thinking, I better make Just sure kidding. that when I get this email out, when I get this email out, I buttoned it up so completely and it's so airtight that I'm going to be able to enjoy my dinner. Right. And so you, you learn the hard way, the value of, of operating on that basis. Um, well, 
you know, I we're close to sort of the end of our time. Um, I think I'd want to close up by saying like, congratulations. Um, you've really, you guys, you and your team have really accomplished quite a bit. Um, obviously since 2017, but really since launching in 2020 in the middle of one of the most difficult times the universe has ever, has ever seen. Um, so to, you know, be as far along as you are is really a testament to not only the quality of what you're doing, but the idea and the, the adoption. And, um, so one congrats, any sort of parting thoughts or, or that you want to leave listeners with? I would just say, you know, to, to the extent that you have listeners that are attorneys and are maybe thinking about entrepreneurship, um, you know, if you're thinking about entrepreneurship, it's probably because you're ready to take the leap. Uh, and you're you here. Know, and, and what I can say is maybe because let's face it, if you're if you're. Chances are you're listening to this podcast and others because you're thinking more you're thinking more expansively about how you can apply your legal skill sets in another environment. And what I will say is that there's so much opportunity for innovation in the fintech, regtech, uh, legal tech space that you know, you're going to have a very unique set of insights that's actually going to drive value in in the build out of whatever new concept you're going to be working on. So, you know, we, you know, I, I have a new business idea almost every day in the context of scaling this business that, you know, if we weren't so focused on this business, we might well tackle another uh, business opportunity just because there's so many opportunities to innovate in the capital markets. Um, but I, I would also just say that all of our success is really a function, A, of the team that we've built, which I'm, in, I'm incredibly proud of, um, but B, of the early adopter investment bankers that have joined our fast-growing network who are also strong believers in this vision uh, that, that there is a tremendous opportunity in empowering the long-tail of investment banks, placement agencies, and independent deal makers, not just here in the U.S., but, but around the world. So we're still in the very early days of telling our story but are very much looking forward to continued growth in the days ahead. Well, I'm really excited to see how you guys grow and how you do. So be sure to check back in with us. And I'd love to do a follow-up with you after some period of time. I'm sure when you have some exciting announcement to make. Um, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Dara. It was a pleasure. Until next time, everyone. 